That's what faith must be. Wow, how many love that last song? Woo! It really sets us up very well for what we're going to be talking about today. But before we get there, how many had a great Thanksgiving? Oh, yeah, how many ate too much? How many ate too much pie? Yeah, there, there I, uh, that's me, both hands. Yes, I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. You know, there's something special about this holiday in America because it's a time where we get to hang out with family and we get to invite in friends and we get to eat ourselves silly with food. And, and you know that there's even football on that day, isn't there? Um, you know, some of you who are Dallas fans probably had a better holiday than those who are Redskins fans. Sorry, it is what it is. Sorry about that. But you know, something about Thanksgiving that's just awesome. But you know something? There is a day that is much better than Thanksgiving, and God was pleased to give us 52 of them every year. I love... Oh, you got it. You know, Sundays are even better than Thanksgiving. Think about it with me. You have family, uh-huh. You can invite over friends, uh-huh. You can eat food, uh-huh. You can watch football, but you get to focus on your faith on Sundays. So Sundays are even better than Thanksgiving. It, it's about as good as it gets, amen? Actually, it's not. You see, as good as Sundays are, I know, I know, um, <clears throat> there is a much, much better day coming for those who are Jesus Christ's. Take your Bibles with me this morning as today we conclude our series called Seeing Eternity as God Sees It. The Bible is God's revelation. That means it is the self-revealing of God and God telling us that which we could not know apart from him letting us know. And that's especially true when it comes to this issue of looking into the future. None of us knows even what the next minute holds for ourselves. But God has revealed to us what eternity looks like and what it holds for those who belong to him as well as what it holds for those who don't belong to him. So in the next few minutes, we're going to start looking down the annals of time into the future and to lay a hold of what it all looks like. Now, before we do that, I want to invite you to pray with me. And then we will tackle this very, very big subject together. Father, um, all glory be to Christ our King. Oh, thank you for that beautiful truth. Uh, that's my prayer even now, Father, as we make our way into your word and we start to look into the future. Uh, will your Holy Spirit please have liberty in our midst? The same spirit that moved on the writers many years ago to record what you wanted written? the same Holy Spirit who has preserved your word so that we could have a complete copy of it today, and the same Spirit who indwells us by faith and then illuminates your word to our understanding. Please help us to grasp what the future looks like for our own benefit and joy as well as our motivation to reach out in love towards others. Please, Father, all glory be to Christ our King. In his name I pray, amen, amen. So we're going to be taking a peek into the future. And thanks be to God, he has given us his word so that we can indeed do that. So if you were to take the Bible and start looking it through, start reading it through, one of the things that becomes very evident uh, is this thing about eternity, is that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that everyone, that Everyone, say that with me, everyone, one more time, everyone 
that everyone will experience an ongoing conscious existence forever. The Bible makes it abundantly clear that every single person who has been conceived in the womb is an eternal being, and they will have conscious existence forever. One of the verses of Scripture, and I could show many, but one of the verses of Scripture has come from Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27. Now, this verse is very important because it actually helps to take care of some misconceptions about the future. So notice it with me. It says, and just as it is appointed for what? So guys die, right? That's what it means, huh? It actually means mankind, humanity. Just as it is appointed for mankind to die how many times? How many times? That's right. So the whole concept of reincarnation is not biblical. It is not real. It is a fanciful understanding that comes from the Near East. But it is not a biblical teaching. So there, you only die once, and then after that comes what? Yeah, so there is a conscious, ongoing existence beyond the grave, and it results in this thing called judgment. Now, there are many judgments in the Bible, yet future. One of the judgments that's coming is the judgment of the sheep and the goats. I believe it, t it takes place at the end, before the millennial state, the 1,000-year reign of Christ on earth, and it is the divvying up of the sheep and the goats. So notice what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, in this parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, and these, referring to the goats, if you will, those who are unsaved without a relationship with him, they will go away into, what's the word? I'm, I'm sorry, what's the word? Eternal punishment. Um, but the righteous, those who are right with God through Christ and his righteousness, into what? Life. That's right. So if you put your grammatical hat on with me for just a moment and analyze this statement from Jesus, we talk a lot about eternal life. We talk a lot about the idea of this ongoing existence that's called the quality of life with God. The word eternal is in the Greek, uh, ionios. It has the idea of the never-ending ages to come. So eternal life is, is a reality that we often talk about. But grammatically speaking, it also here in this context talks about eternal, same word, what? That's right. This verse also does away with another false conception about the future, and that is this idea of annihilationism. The idea that somehow, you know, when we get into the other side and God judges people that out of his mercy and grace, he'll just extinguish them. The Bible does not teach that. So the Bible does not teach reincarnation. It does not teach uh, this idea of annihilationism. The Bible teaches that everybody, say that with me, everybody, one more time, everybody has an ongoing eternal experience that will never end. And so the question is never how long will we live because we all have an equal length of time to live. The question is always what will be the quality of that existence beyond this life. So, with the eyes of faith in God's divine revelation, we can see that everyone is eternal. Somebody put it like this. There was a time when you were not, but there never will be a time when you will not be. You see, at the moment of conception, an eternal soul was formed, and around that, a body. 
and you were born into this world, and today the real you is looking out through the eyes of the body that you presently inhabit. But when that body goes into the grave, the real you goes on indefinitely. Turn to your neighbor right now, turn to your neighbor next to you, and say to them, you're eternal. No, no, you're eternal. Tell them that. Turn to a different neighbor and say, you're going to live forever. That's right. So we are all eternal beings. You know, I, I love what somebody one time they said. They said this. You know, we are basically, most of us think we're basically physical creatures who are having these brief spiritual experiences. But in reality, we are spiritual beings who are having a very brief physical experience called this mortal life. And so we will all live forever. Again, the issue of eternity is not a question of how long you will exist, but where. And so Jesus gives us a clear understanding of there's two locations. One is called eternal, and the quality of it is referred to as... And then the other is likewise eternal, but the quality of its existence is likened unto. One is often referred to as heaven. The other is often referred to as hell. Now, I don't want to focus this morning on the topic of hell. And all God's people said, yeah, that's not a fun topic. However, just before we move on and talk about heaven, I do want to just help you to understand that as real as heaven is, hell is real too. You know, it's not just Jesus who makes this statement in just one little statement at the end of a parable. But what I want you to notice is the Apostle Paul, he made this statement in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 7 through 9. Now notice what he said. He said, and the Lord Jesus, when he returns, he will come in a flaming fire inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel, which is to bend the knee and to embrace Christ. They will suffer the punishment, notice, of eternal... What's the word? So there's another word the Bible tries to use to warn us about this horrific place. It uses, you know, the worm never dies, um, the idea of outer darkness, the fire that is ongoing. It uses words like punishment. It uses words like destruction. It uses words like the second death. So this place is as real in eternity as the place we're going to focus on together this morning. And so this is a reality. And so you're like, Pastor Bill, how can this be? You know, most people are not really wicked or evil or cruel or mean. A lot of people are just good people. They just don't know Jesus. They're, they're just, they're, they're okay, you know, they're, they're kind, they're nice. How can you say they're going to go to this place forever? <clears throat> I'm going to do the best I can to just summarize it in a statement as we get ready to move on to the next topic. But I just want to say this. According to the Word of God, we know that because of our selfish, sinful rebellion and because of our unwillingness to embrace God's love gift, Jesus Christ, with our lives, that we have not only offended an infinitely holy being by our sin, 
but we have also spurned and rejected perfect love. So the reality is this. The penalty, the penalty for offending an infinitely holy, perfectly loving being is an infinitely vengeful or jealously just eternal punishment. I don't get it. I don't really understand how holy God is. And I don't understand how loving he is, really. But this is what the Bible teaches. And this is where most people are. And they all need a relationship with Jesus Christ. So with this knowledge, with this sense of understanding that comes to us from the scriptures, with the eye of faith, we need to understand and we need to run to the cross. We need to run to Jesus because here is God's judgment on sin. Either you will find your forgiveness through Christ or you will pay your own eternal price for your sin. Notice what it says, for God so loved the world. No, for God so loved you that he gave his only son, Jesus, that if you will but believe in him, you will not perish. The idea is ongoing eternal destruction from the presence of God, but you will experience eternal life, a quality of existence that's life and living and beauty and blessedness. The difference between perishing eternally and experiencing life eternally is this difference it is the willingness to bend the knee and to repent of your sin and put faith and trust in the person of Christ it means this that you turn from as much of your sin as you know and then you take as much as you know of yourself and you give it to as much as you know of Christ in that moment, by the work of the Holy Spirit, you have been born again, given a new life. You have been called a child of the living God, and you did nothing. All that we're about to talk about, all the blessedness that belongs to believers, we have done nothing to deserve. It is a gift found by repentance and faith in Jesus My prayer is that if you are here today and you have yet to bend the knee to acknowledge your need of Christ and to give him your life, that you would do that. Because those who do have eternal what? That's right. We're going to talk about heaven. We're going to talk about heaven. It doesn't get any better than what I'm about to tell you about. It is extraordinary. It is wonderful. It is awe-inspiring. It is amazing what God has in mind for those who love him. Take your Bibles, Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read 21 verses 1 through 3 and then verses 9 through 22. <clears throat> and while I read them, I would like for you to focus up here on the screen because I want to show you what I'm reading. Ready? Here we go. Revelation 21 in verse 1. And then I, John, 
saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw, I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and he, they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and said to me, John, come, and I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a high mountain and showed me the Holy Spirit, uh, showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like jasper, as clear as crystal. It had a great high wall with 12 gates, and the 12 gates, uh, 12 angels at those gates. On the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. The 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each gate was made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was a pure gold like transparent glass. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates and its walls. The city was laid out like a square. As long as it was wide, he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. The wall of the, the, wall of the city had 12 foundations and on them were written the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprass, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. And I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. Heaven. I like what uh, uh, Timothy Keller says. He says this, This world is not our home. Amen? But it will be. But it will be. You see, heaven is a new heaven and a new earth with a new city for the people of God to inhabit. The future home of the redeemed is a redeemed and renewed heavens and earth in a completely new city called the New Jerusalem. And so we're going to take a walk around this place called heaven. We're going to take a little bit of a walk around this place called uh, our future home. Now, how many of you have ever moved? Do you ever go on the internet and kind of surf to figure out where you're moving and what the places are and what the, the school systems are like and, and what the ge geography is like? You ever do that? Well, if you're going to heaven, wouldn't it be wise to know what the lay of the land's going to look like? 
Wouldn't it be wise to have a little understanding of where you're heading and what it's going to be like? Well, let me show you exactly what your future home in Christ will be like. Here we go. So, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem. One of the things I want to tell you as we work our way through this text in Revelation 21, first of all, is this. Heaven is a real place to live. It is a physical, tangible, real dwelling for the people of God. Revelation 21 and verse 2 said this, And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, as it was coming down out of heaven from God. And the word used there is prepared. Prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Often heaven has been referred to as a prepared place for prepared people. The idea of being prepared in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 2 is the same word that comes off the lips of Jesus Christ in John chapter 14, verses 1 through 3. Hello, one more time. There we go. <clears throat> Where Jesus says this, and we often read this uh, when we have funerals, but, but let's not read it for a funeral. Let's read it for us now. He said this, do not let your hearts be troubled. In other words, don't be dismayed or upset. Now, Jesus was talking to his disciples as he was getting ready to leave them. He was going to go back to heaven. He's going to send back to the Father. He's going to sit on the right hand of the throne. And so he was telling them, guys, I want to leave you a promise, something very precious that will get you through the hardest of times. I don't want your hearts to be troubled. I want you to trust in God. I want you to trust in God. I want you to exercise faith in God. But if you do that, also put your faith in me. In my Father's what? Are many... Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, some people here want to look at the King James Version of the Bible and go, but it's mansions, isn't it? Isn't it supposed to be mansions? Sorry. Uh, the actual word there is not mansions. It actually has the idea of a room or an apartment. And it will be a room or an apartment in this thing called the New Jerusalem. So we're not going to get a mansion per se, but we will have a room in the Father's house. He says, if it were not so, I would have told you. I go to, and there's our word, prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. So in a very real way, the city of the New Jerusalem is what Jesus Christ says he's going to prepare for us. Now, Jesus is actually picking up on the wedding customs of, of his day and age. The way it worked back in Jesus' day was the fathers of the bride and the groom would strike hands on a bargain that their son and daughter would marry. Then the, the son would go to the girl, and he would say, here's a dowry, and, and so I will be back to get you. And then he would leave her, and he would be separated for almost a year. And he would go back to daddy's house, and there he would add on to dad's house to make a living place for he and his future bride. When the place was finally done and ready, he would then get all his buds together, and they would go down to her house, and then they would grab her and put her on a chair, and they'd make this ruckus noise, go back to Daddy's house, where he would then have the wedding ceremony, and they would have this huge feast, and there they would live together in Daddy's house. How many of you have children living in your basement? No, I'm just kidding. It's a biblical idea. It's a biblical idea. But nevertheless, so, so this is the idea. So Jesus has gone back to daddy's house, and he's adding on a place for his own. How long has Jesus been gone? Yeah. Now, if he could speak all of creation to an existence in six days, how do you think this place is going to be? Oh, my gosh. 
It's going to be outstanding. He's been at it for 2,000 years. When he's done, he's coming. And what a place it is going to be. So this idea of a prepared place for a prepared people is rife in the word of God. Jesus talked about going to build this place. In fact, the Old Testament saints were actually looking for this place. It says this in Hebrews chapter 11, verses 10 and 16 of Abraham. For he, Abraham, way back then, was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has, what's the word? Prepared for them a city. It's the same word. So what I want you to know about the new Jerusalem, it is the prepared place of God for the people who have been prepared to go there, those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And it is an extraordinary, extraordinary place. So heaven is a real place to live. Let me now use some <clears throat> understanding. Oh, I like this from Randy Alcorn. Notice what he said. Heaven, the way the scriptures describe it, is a bright and vibrant physical new earth in New Jerusalem. It is free from sin, suffering, and death and brimming with Christ's presence, wondrous natural beauty, and the richness of human culture as God intended it to be. Real people with real bodies, enjoying close relationships with God and each other, eating and drinking, working and playing, traveling and worshiping, and discovering on, and discovering on the new earth. Earth as God created it, earth as God intended it to be. So what I want you to see from this is, too often our understanding of heaven is influenced by our culture. And we have this idea of, of clouds, kind of this ethereal thing. You can't really see it. It hasn't got, got real substance to it. And yet nothing could be further from the truth. It's not this unknown nebulous thing. It is a physical reality that God is beckoning the people of God toward to enjoy forever in his presence. And so this is a real place, a real place to really live. Now, <clears throat> I'm going to actually uh, go on. And I want to talk to you a little bit about some of the realities of this place. You know, somebody has said this, if the literal sense makes simple sense, don't search for another sense. Sometimes we can spiritualize text to make it say what we want it to say, but, you know, quite frankly, if the text makes literal sense, and it is simply simple sense, don't search for another sense. So this is a literal physical place. How do we know? We have an eyewitness in John, and we have an angel actually measuring the parts of it. That's done on purpose so that we can see how tangible it is. So this is a literal physical place, but I think it also conveys to us some wonderful uh, figurative or spiritual truths. So let me see if I can do some of these spiritual truths that I think this city affords us. First of all, I think this city speaks to us and screams to us of the idea of protection. Protection. Where do I get that from? Well, I get that from the wall. The wall that is around this city. Revelation chapter 21 and verse 17 says this of the angel. He measured its wall. It was 144 cubits by human measurement, which is also an angel's measurement. So apparently the angel and the man are the same size. A cubit was measured from the forearm to the fingers. And so when you were measuring something, sometimes you would just do about 18 inches. That's a cubit. So a foot and a half times 144 equals about 216 feet. Now, we don't know whether that is the height of the wall that goes all the way around this city 
or if it is the thickness of the wall. We're not exactly sure. But whichever it is, this much we know. Donald Trump would love this wall. It is big. It is thick. And it is impregnable. Nobody's getting through it. Nobody's getting over it. But the reality is this. Why do you need a wall in heaven? I mean, you don't need a wall in heaven. There's no enemies in heaven. So why is it there? It is there as a constant reminder that heaven is a place of utter protection. In fact, this, this city is amazing. Um, if you were to actually take its dimensions, the strata, uh, stadia, and actually measure them out, it's about 1,400 miles wide by 1,400 miles deep by about 1,400 miles high. Uh, if you were to compare that to the United States, uh, it would stretch from about Maine to Florida and from the D.C. out as far west as Colorado. It is a phenomenally large structure. It covers about 2.25 million square miles. And somebody has realized that if it's that tall, then it would have 600,000 stories. How many people are afraid of heights? <clears throat> Don't worry, you won't be then. It doesn't, you know. So it's 600,000 stories high. And somebody has guesstimated that it could easily contain 100 billion people. Wow. Now what you need to understand is this. Back in the Old Testament economy, when God was working through the nation of Israel, there was little salvation. Little salvation. Today, in the present economy, as God works through the church in this church age, from the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 until Christ comes back for his own, during this time frame, there is more salvation going on. Amen? <laughs> Amen? Yes, yes, it's good. So back in the Old Testament times, there was little salvation. In the present time frame, there is more salvation. But there's a time frame coming called the Millennial Kingdom. It is a thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, and those who transition from this life in, in, in Christ, in their physical bodies, will have children. And in that time frame, there will be much salvation. So all that to say is God has built a city that will contain his people, and we will all have an incredible place to live. So we have this wall. And the reason why the wall is there is not because there are any enemies to protect us from, but rather is a reminder that there aren't any enemies anymore. Notice what it says in Revelation 21 verse 8. He says, cowards, unbelievers, corrupt, murderers, the immoral, those who practice witchcraft, idol worshipers, and all liars, their fate is not in this city, their fate is in the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Now, he's talking about that place of utter ongoing destruction. Um, punishment, destruction, where the worm never dies, utter darkness. That's, that's that other place, hell. But in heaven, all of that has been removed. He goes on to say this in Revelation 21, verse 27. Nothing impure will ever enter it nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. This is the future abode for the children of God. And then not only is there no chance of physical harm, but there's also no longer any emotional distress because he, Jesus, will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone for how long? The full duration of being with God. 
So this is the city. It is a literal, physical place to live. But its great wall reminds us that it's completely safe. There is utter peace in this place. No longer any anxiety or fear. Not only is there utter protection, but next, another feature of this city that I think projects something to us is the idea of preeminence. Preeminence. Because we're told that around this city there are gates. And it says in Revelation 21, verse 21, that the gates were 12 pearls. And each of the gates was made out of a single pearl. Now notice, there are 12 pearls that go around this city. There are singular pearls for each of the gates. So there's a dozen of these around the four sides. <clears throat> what I want you also to notice is this. As it talks about these gates, one of the things it doesn't say is St. Peter is there. There ain't no St. Peter waiting at the gate. I just want you to know that. Uh, in fact, it says in, in 12, uh, 21 verse 12 that at the gates are 12 angels. Okay, so there's angels there, no St. Peter. That's just something we made up. So in antiquity, pearls are called the royal gem. And they were of much more value, valuable, value than even diamonds or rubies. And the reason why this is hedged with these pearls is because of the reality of who is present there. It says this in Revelation 21, verses 22 and 23. And I did not see a temple in this city, because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it its light. And the Lamb, the lamb is a what? He's a lamp. <laughs> Jesus is lighting it up from the inside out. It's a glorious place. And the reason why there's pearls that ring it is because the king is in residence there. Jesus Christ will inhabit this place, and all of his glory will be manifested there. Somebody has fantasized that when, as we're out serving Christ in and amongst his kingdom, that every once in a while Jesus will walk by, and we'll be able to run up to him and just bow down and, and tell him how glorious we believe he is and how good he is and how merciful he has been, and he'll know us each by name. It's going to be a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful time. Heaven is a real place to live. It is a place of protection and preeminence. And also, <clears throat> lastly, it is a place of permanence. A place of permanence. It's not going anywhere. The second law of thermodynamics doesn't work in this place. And the way we know that it's permanent is because of the foundation. The foundation of the city walls are decorated with every kind of precious stone. So what I want you to do is I want you to tell me the name of the stone, and then I'll tell you a color. And I want you to kind of build this mentally. The colors as they blare up to the 12 stones, the 12 foundation stones. So here we go. I need your help. The first foundation was... Now, you're not all joining me here. The first foundation was... Uh, very good. That is a clear as crystal stone. The second was... Which is a rich blue color. The third is... Yeah, we're not so sure how to say that one, but that's on Chalcedony. It is a greenish-blue color. The fourth is, and you should hear, come on. That very good. It's a deep, rich green. The fifth is, very good. It is a whitish, translucent stone with brown streaks in it. The sixth is, 
carnelian. Yeah, that's a blood red stone, a blood red stone. And it goes on to say, um, and then the seventh is, very good, that is yellow. The eighth is, that's a yellow green. The ninth is, which is a light blue. The tenth is, very well, chrysoprasis, I don't know how to say it either. It's golden, it's golden. The eleventh is, yeah, we're not sure about that one either, violet. And the twelfth is, and you can say this one, it's an amethyst. Very good. And that is a purple. So, do you have this mental image of these layers of stones, each of which is, is kind of translucent and amazing? So there's this huge layer of stones that are the foundation. Now what I'd like you to imagine is, I'd like you to take Jesus and put Jesus' power and light right into the middle of all these translucent stones and the glory of Jesus Christ, who is the light of the world, but then will be the light of the universe, will cause all these colors to bathe one end of the galaxy, the universe, to the other with his glory. We don't even know what to say. What? what, yeah, what yeah, uh, John didn't know what to say. John had no ability to, to express to us the immense beauty of this place. So all John could do was think of the most beautiful thing he could think of, and then he likened it to it. He said, it's, it's like a bride on her wedding day. Nothing more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. I remember my wedding day so well. Standing at South Paris Baptist Church, and there were a couple hundred people there. And I'm going through the throes of agoraphobia, anxiety, and panic attacks. And I'm standing up there sweating bullets, and all these people are looking at me. And then in walks the bride, and everybody's heads went there. <laughs> it was like, Phew, that's great. And then my eyes went there. And she walked down, and I was like, oh, nothing more beautiful than a bride on her wedding day. John ran out of words. He couldn't think of anything else to express just how beautiful this place was. So he said, ah, la, 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 it's a bride on her wedding day. Utterly beautiful, incredibly, incredibly breathtaking. That is this place. So heaven is a real place to live. And then secondly, and we'll move through this very quickly, heaven is a place of pure labor, a place of pure labor. Now, maybe labor is the wrong word, but it works with my, uh, my acrostic here. Um, because the word labor often has the idea of drudgery or something burdensome or unpleasant. I could easily put in the word pure joy, pure happiness, pure ecstasy. Because that's exactly what heaven will be like. Unreal opportunity and potential will be realized at that time. I heard a story one time about a, a teenager who said, I don't know why everybody is so excited about going to heaven. It's just going to be an eternal church service. Boring. Oh, my gosh. If that's your fear, and I think secretly it's some people's fears, come on, heaven's going to be just this ongoing thing. How could it ever be wonderful? Well, think with me for just a minute. Let me ask you this question. Who created the universe with its two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, each with 100 billion stars? 
Let me ask you that again, because I don't think you know. Who created the universe with its two trillion galaxies in the observable universe, each with 100 billion stars? God did it. Who created 20,000 varieties of butterflies and 250,000 variations of moths? God did it. Who created the beauty of a sunset or the 400,000 differing flowering plants or the kiss? God did. If you can trust God to create the universe that we consider so beautiful today, how can he who is ultimately powerful and beautiful and ongoingly creative not create a place that would be ultimately not boring? Besides, we will be too busy to be bored quickly. We are going to sing. How many like that idea? I know Courtney does. Yes. How many like to sing? How many hate to sing? Yes, I see some other hands going up here. Yes, there are some people who don't like singing. Can you believe that? But when we get there, we're going to sing. And we are going to sing because, quite frankly, sound is a wave. It's a wave. And if you're out on the ocean and you're on a wave, if a big wave comes by, it lifts you up. Well, the same thing is true of sound. If you're in an environment where there is a strong sound wave, it'll actually lift you up. And you will be engaged by it and you will be overwhelmed by it. So when you get to heaven, there's going to be lots of singing going on. It says in Revelation 5, 19 through 12, and they sang a new song. Notice, a new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem, and a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased men for God from every tribe, every language, every people and nation. And you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign with you on earth. And then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels. How many? Numbering thousands upon. And then ten thousands upon. Yeah. You know, in the Greek language, ten thousand was the biggest number they had. He couldn't say a bigger number. So this is an innumerable number. And he says, in, in light of that, they're circling the throne with living creatures and the elders. And in a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and what? Being in the presence of that kind of cacophony, not cacophony, beauty, of, of, of 10,000 times, 10,000 times, thousands of angels, along with all the redeemed throughout humanity, along with the elders and along with the, the... Oh, my gosh. There's going to be such a wave of sound that you cannot help but sing. Let me give you just a little glimpse of that. Just a little glimpse of that. Uh, I found this little song. <clears throat> it's only a 240-voice choir. So it's a little group of people, not innumerable. But, but I want you to just hear it and they repeat themselves after the first go. So let's listen to the first part, and then let's sing, join in on the second part, and let's just see if we can't raise a little goose bump, okay? Just a little goose bump, and maybe even some of you will get a big glory bump. I don't know. We'll see. Here we go. So listen, 240 voices.
not bad. But part of the glorified body is a glorified voice, amen? So those of us who sing off-key and lousy will sing gloriously to the glory of God. And so this is part of what we will be doing in, in heaven. We will be caught up in this worship and we'll be carried along in it with all the redeemed throughout time. So we will sing. Not only will we sing, but we will also serve. For the very first time, we will know what it is to serve God with pure motive, with complete effort, using all our capacities to realize things. I love what a man by the name of N.T. Wright has to say here about what we will be doing in the kingdom in this time where we are with Christ. Notice what N.T. says. It's, it's not entirely clear, but one thing is clear, and that is that those who belong to Jesus Christ in the present will actually, and I hesitate to say this because it sounds arrogant or triumphalistic, but it's what the New Testament says, those who belong to Jesus Christ will be running the new world as God's stewards, but take away all the sting of the idea of running things as big, wicked bosses, sort of forcing everybody to do this or that, because the model of leadership and of, of ruling which is there is that of Jesus himself, is that of the gentle shepherd, is that of the steward, is that of the one who says, if anyone wants to be great, they must be your servant. So again and again, in Paul and in Revelation and elsewhere, there is this sense that uh, if you have learned in this life to look after the bit of the world that God has given you to look after, which might be your own body, might be your family, might be a business, might be a church, whatever, then this is preparing you to help God look after his new creation. And that's awesome. And actually, I don't think I've ever heard a sermon on that, but it is right there in the text. It is right there in the text. I love what Jesus says in this parable. Uh, he said, well done, my good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over what? That's this life. If you have been faithful over what God has given you to steward in this life, I will set you over what? That's in the life to come. Enter into the joy of your master. Uh, the word joy there, I love what um, Dallas Willard says in his book, The Divine Conspiracy. He said that joy is, of course, the creation and the care of what is good. In all its dimensions, a place in God's creative order has been reserved for each one of us. His plan is for us to, uh, to develop as apprentices of Jesus to the point where we can take our place in the ongoing creativity of the universe. Think about that. God's not done creating. When the new heavens and the new earth come, those are renovations. But then the creativity of God goes on indefinitely, and we get to participate in that incredible creativity and you know what I believe we're going to love every eternal minute of it sing serve and then lastly we get to share we get to share in heaven in endless fellowship with those who are there think of this for a second fellowship in its purest sense is sharing in Jesus not football not how good the turkey was not the great sale item I got on Black Friday. Fellowship in its purest sense is sharing in Jesus. What he means to you, what he has done in your life, and how he has used you to touch the lives of others and to bring him glory. Now imagine you're in heaven as a child of God 
And no doubt there, you're going to want to seek out people like Abraham and Moses and David and Daniel and Peter and Paul and ask them, what was it like to watch God work in your life? What was it like to see God do this? What was it like to offer up your son and not know exactly what was going to happen? What was it? What was it? And we're all going to be looking to them. And you know what they're going to say to you? What was it like for you? Oh, you could be kidding. I'm me. I'm not Abraham. I'm not Daniel. I'm not, I'm not David. What are you talking about? No, no, no. There are no superstars in heaven. There's only one superstar, and his name is Jesus. And all the rest of us are merely trophies of his grace. Tell me about how he worked in your life. Let me hear your story. Because it's as meaningful as any other story in the Bible, because it all brings glory to God. And so this is what heaven will be like. Very different than life on this earth. This is the word that summarizes life in the flesh. I miss you. I miss you because you left me. I, I miss you because you, you broke the relationship we have. I miss you because you've gone off overseas to, to defend our country. I miss you because you died. I miss you. But the day is coming where the I miss you will go away. And the Bible says, when this perishable has been clothed with that which is imperishable, and this mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. There will no longer be any more, I miss you. It will all be, I love being with you. I thought this caught some of the sentiment of what it's like to be reconnected with those you love the most. Oops, you went too far. Oh, come now. Hi, my name is Hannah Escher. I'm 10 years old and I go to Randolph Elementary School. My dad, Master Sergeant Joe Myers, is in Iraq right now.
before I miss you. That is what heaven will be like. It's going to end with this verse. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 through 18. For the Lord himself is coming, and he will descend from heaven with a cry, a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever or always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Are you going to be one of those who are caught up when Christ returns? You know, there's nothing withholding the return of Christ. And when he breaks the clouds to call his own to himself, the house is ready, come my bride, let's go back to daddy's house and for a thousand years let's celebrate the wedding. Are you going to be part of that? Or are you going to be left behind? And you're not going to be a part of that at all. The difference between heaven and hell is to bow your knee now to the person of Jesus Christ and in repentance, turning from what all you know of your sin and then giving all you know of yourself to all you know of him. That is what gives to you the right to be called a child of God. That gives to you eternal life. My prayer for you is that you will see that from the revelation of God and that you would give your heart and your life to Jesus Christ. Let me pray for us and we will conclude our service. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you that you have prepared a place. And it's a place that none of us can take any credit for. It is merely a place that you and your mercy and grace have prepared for those of us who come to Jesus. Father, I pray for all of us in this room right now. Father, if there are some here today that have yet to bend the knee, I pray that they would make that decision even today not put off for tomorrow what they can do today because none of us know even what tomorrow holds. Thank you for the truth that this life is the only hell a child of God will ever know. But sadly, it is the only heaven people apart from Christ will ever know. Help us to be motivated by that truth, I pray. In Jesus' name, and the people of God said...